What's going on, trail runners? Welcome to another edition of the Coopcast. Lined up today, I was on a recent trip out to the North Face uh, Endurance Challenge Series Championship out in San Francisco, and I thought I would take the time to head out to Berkeley, California, uh, to the headquarters of Goo Energy Labs, um, and speak with Roxanne Vogel who is a nutrition and performance research manager at Goo Energy Labs. So she's responsible for basically the pipeline of products from conception to testing to ultimately when they, you know, end up in your pocket or in your hydration pack. And I thought that she could provide a unique perspective on where sports nutrition is going and where it's currently at and illuminate some of the things that you know may have kind of fallen out of favor over the past few years such as sodium supplementation we've seen that go gone from being in vogue where it was on the you know, where it was on aid station tables uh ad nauseum to where now it's it's almost kind of demonized and uh it's, it's been interesting to see that uh, uh the progression of that particular aspect and so what i thought i'd do is i sit down and, and just have a real frank discussion with her about where she sees the space, uh, what types of products that they might have in the pipeline, and also what she's got going on. If you guys don't know Roxanne, she is a legitimate badass. She's done six out of the seven summits, and very soon she'll be on her way to the seventh one out in Antarctica. So we wish her a lot of luck uh, for uh, in that particular expedition. So she definitely puts her actions where her mouth is. I mean, she literally puts it where, where her mouth is, meaning she designs a lot of the products that she's going to take on these extremely arduous expedition. And there's no better proof in the pudding than that, where you can design something and then quite literally put it into practice in some of the most extreme environments on planet Earth. So I found the conversation fascinating. We did take a, kind of a look at some of the more controversial aspects of sports nutrition, and you guys will have to definitely tune in for that. Uh, in an effort of full disclosure, I have nothing to disclose with Goo. They don't give me any products. They don't sponsor me. I don't get a dime from them for doing anything. I just really appreciate what they do. I really appreciate the science that they put into sports nutrition. And I also appreciate the flavoring that they uh, that they put into their sports nutrition products. I, I think that of all the companies out there, they, they get that aspect the best. So no sort of financial entanglement from my end. Like I said, I just like what they do. <clears throat> and we do talk about some of the products that I, that, that I that I really like and also some of their products that, you know, I might have some sort of disagreement with. So without further ado, go ahead, tune in, perk your ears up for a conversation with Roxanne Vogel from Goo. First off, before we get into anything specific, tell me about Everest. Yeah, so that was a whirlwind. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, I thought maybe there was a 10 to 30% chance that I would succeed at that. And um, it was just this crazy idea. And I was like, well, if anyone can do it and has the resources available, like we have our chamber here where I could spend a good part of my day in simulated altitude, I was like, well, if anyone can do it, it's probably me. Like I've got these resources here. I've got support at Goo and... Um, yeah, it just ended up working out. I think a lot of it was preparation, obviously, but we also got lucky with the weather and um, like the lines 
to the top, which have to be fixed in advance to keep you on the mountain, weren't actually put in place until I was following the Sherpa who were fixing the lines on the way up. So it was like, you know, if they don't make it and have to turn around, then, you know, you have to turn around because likelihood of falling off the mountain is greatly increased without being on fixed lines. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it was, uh, it it was, it was wild. And uh, it was kind of a, one of those things where it's like, I'll probably have a never, never have an experience like that ever again. But you went during a year where it was really notorious for having a lot of traffic. I mean, the, the images that came out of Everest, you know, this past year when you, when you went up were some of the more horrific ones that, that we've seen. And you even got lucky within one of the worst years, it seems like. Yeah. And I think a large part of that is I went from the North side from Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally didn't have that experience whatsoever. In fact, my guide, Lydia Brady and I were the only ones climbing, the only climbing party that day that we summited on the 22nd of May, which is the same day that that picture was taken on the other side. We got to the top around noon and everybody had come and gone at that point because we actually summited pretty late in the day. And so I never saw a single other climber that day. Was that kind of surreal to see the pictures after the fact and go, holy shit, that was going on on the other side of the mountain and you had like no idea? Yeah, I at first I didn't believe that. I was just like, what, where did these come from? Like, this is not the same day I summoned it because I would have seen them. But, you know, then I realized oh, that's great. I guess I didn't realize the timing of when you guys got up to the top versus yeah. the timing of when that picture, when those like inf- now infamous, right, pictures yeah. Yeah. were taken. And so you were totally oblivious at, about that until when? Um, a few days after uh, I had summited and I got back down to where we had Wi-Fi reception. So down in um, Tibet, when I was like getting ready to fly home, um, you know, I was starting to hear kind of news reports about things on the other side. Cause I had friends climbing on the other side as well. Um, oh. And, you know, sadly one of them got sick and had to be evacuated, but yeah, like I was checking on him. And then that's when I heard about the lineup and, and all those things that were going on. I was like, I can't even can't even believe it. Wow. So do you want to go back? I actually do. I do want to climb the other side. Nice. Yeah. There's something. So wait, you went up the, you went up the non-traffic side and after seeing all the traffic and all the stories that came out from it and knowing that the risk is for, even for you, right? Cause you're, you're an experienced mountaineer, even for you is going to be greater on the other side, just cause you're at the whim of all the inexperienced people out there. You still want to go back? Well, so here's the thing. Um, I know a group attempted this fall to climb for the first time in about a decade. Normally it's climbed in May, right? So it's climbed in the spring. Um, But some people attempted this fall and I think that would be a great time to go because there's nobody out there. Um, Conditions this year were just not there for the attempt to be successful for them, unfortunately. But I think if I wanted to go back and climb on the south, I would try to probably go in the fall. So. Kudos for you. That's really cool. That's, I mean, that's an experience that not a lot of people have, right? And it takes a lot of, I'm not, I'm preaching in the choir here. It takes a lot of time and energy and training to get it done right. And it's, I think it's cool that you recognize the fact that you only had at most a 30% chance of success. Yeah. It's really scary when you think of all the effort and time and, and energy, not only myself, but like everybody around me had to kind of put into it. And then you're like, well, this really probably is unlikely to succeed, but we'll try. What goo products were you using on the mountain? So we had um, the good fortune of developing some specific products for this, but like based off of our current form factors. So I took a version of um, Roctane gel. 
that was specifically made for this trip, a version of a Roctane drink mix that was made for the trip. Um, and then I took some Everest bars, we called them, which were just basically like a super calorie dense, kind of high fat, but it had essential amino acids added into it to protect muscle breakdown, but not, you know, draw on the system for having to break down protein at the same time. Um, so we took some of those Everest bars. Uh, those are amazing. They were just like this really decadent chocolate macadamia rich. And I would eat them while I was moving and just kind of like munch on them throughout the day. Um, So that, and then the Roctane Recovery, I actually, so Roctane Protein Recovery was being launched when I was out there and I discovered so many ways to enjoy it, including in hot water, which was just fantastic. The, uh, the vanilla in hot water is just, oh, so good. That's cool. (laughs) Are you at liberty to say why it's a version of Roctane? Yeah. So I, you know, through my research, and that's kind of what I do here is as part of the research and development uh, team, I look into whatever's kind of on the horizon as far as sports nutrition supplements and ingredients that could improve performance. And specifically, I was looking for things that could help with altitude. So, um, you know, a couple of ingredients that I found, so like ketone salts, for instance, um, they're showing some good research to say that not only are they uh, anti-catabolic, um, but they're also, they've got a strong antioxidant component to them, which you're creating a lot of uh, oxidative stress when you're up there and, you know, you're not having enough oxygen, but your your mitochondria are working overtime. So a lot of oxidative stress at altitude. So for that reason, and then also for cognitive function. So right. ketones can fuel the brain. Um, so for all those reasons, I was interested in that specifically. And are those products that you think are going to make it to market or are they going to like remain in the goo lab for special use cases? Um, you know, I would never say never. So it's right now there's no plans to commercialize them, but it's something that we've tested and, you know, I did collect data when I was on the mountain, um, to see like what the effects are. So there's definitely, it'll be kind of in the vault in case we ever want to do something with it. In the well, and that, that's what happens a lot with sports nutrition, right? You have a single use case or maybe a small, you know, handful of use cases mm-hmm. and you're developing a product for that small handful of use cases and yep. you see how it works. And if it works well, then maybe you have something to grasp onto that ultimately becomes a product. And right. If it doesn't work well and you just kind of go back to the drawing board, I mean, that's, that's not a... Uh, you know, that's not a uncommon story to hear in the sports yeah. nutrition world. Well, in a lot of industries, it's like, you know, there's so many ideas sure. and so many prototypes, but what, like 10% of yeah. things actually go to launch. So, yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit more about your R&D product, your R&D process as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I have the experience of this from, you know, way back in the day when you guys were first developing the Roctane drink mix. Mm-hmm. which at the time was unique because it was high calorie. It was specifically made for ultra endurance athletes, you know, like myself. So it was kind of like right up, you know, right up my alley for something to uh, to use in, in a race and in training situations. Why don't you just run me through how, just how that whole, how your, how your end of the goo world is set up and how you take a product from idea to getting it out in the field and testing with athletes and then ultimately either shelving it or getting it into a, like a commercial applica- application. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's really fun and it's kind of a long process. And most people don't realize that, uh, you know, the whole idea behind a product before it actually comes out might start two or three years in advance of, you know, it hitting the shelves. Um, so 
initially what usually happens is there's some sort of impetus, like there's some new research article on a particular ingredient or the other impetus can be an athlete need case, right? So there's a couple of things that we always strive to fulfill in creating a new product. It has to be driven by athlete needs. It has to be grounded in sound science. And so we do the background research. I specifically do a lot of reading of scholarly articles and uh, reading journals all the time, things like that. And then the last consideration is it has to be portable because obviously that's what we do. We specialize in making products that people can take with them for you know, their athletic needs. So those three things are kind of the conditions that we start with um, when creating a new product. And so whatever that need is or whatever that ingredient is, we'll find a way to incorporate it either into an existing form factor like the gel or a drink mix or, you know, a capsule. Um, and from there, we'll do some benchtop work, which when I say benchtop, it means we have this little test kitchen in the back of our building where um, our flavor scientists, our our food scientists essentially can do small batches of test product uh, pilot samples and things like that and put it into generic packaging. And then we'll um, test it in house first to make sure, you know, it, it tastes okay enough to give to athletes. <laughs> and then the next round is usually giving it to some of our um, sponsored athletes and kind of close family circle of athletes that we deal with on a daily basis here and giving it to them to kind of take into the field and test and then provide us feedback. So you keep it pretty tight in case you really screw the flavoring up. Well, I mean, everything, you know, when it comes out at first, it may not be the best tasting thing, but we're like, well, we're going to like improve it from here, no yeah. doubt. So, yeah. but yeah, we keep it to a small circle of people we trust and uh, we'll send it into the field with them, get feedback, optimize it some, and we'll go through rounds of this, right? So this is kind of just like an ongoing We'll tweak things um, multiple times and then we might do a pilot run, which is like we'll send it for a bigger scale of production. So maybe like a thousand units of whatever it is, like a thousand gel packets or something. And then that will go out to kind of a bigger group. Um, we do have a group of, we're calling the Super Tasters right now, which is kind of our extended network. So it's not just our sponsored athletes, but it includes like ambassadors. We call our Salty Squad. Um, we'll send new products to them and then get their feedback. So an even bigger group. So it kind of, it's like this, if you think of R&D as like the bullseye in the in the um, the target, you know, then we kind of ripple out from there. So like next circle out and then next circle before it ever goes to market. Um, so sometimes, you know, we get feedback and it's like, well, that's not so great. Or like, it's okay. It could use some work. Um, and then, you know, either we'll refine it to the point where we're ready for production. We have enough good feedback. We feel really good about the product. Um, and even then there's always points along the way where somebody can say, nope, we're not going to launch it. Right. So, uh, it really just kind of depends, but either it'll go to production from the, the testing after the pilot run, or it will, get the brakes put on it and maybe held up for later. And so for, for example, with the Roctane drink mix, Mm -hmm. and I I can remember this because I got some of the first batches of it to, to, to taste test, which were not very good. (laughs) And I think you guys would would admit that and you improved them a lot. What was the timeframe for that development process from the initial formulation to testing it to ultimately when it shows up in a running store or bike shop? Yeah. Well, with the Roctane products in particular, they were created for, um, ultra running specifically, which was great. And um, the naming of it had to do with, you know, the Hard Rock 100 endurance race in Colorado. And um, so that 
particular product took a really long time, an inordinately long time, so longer than most products. But I would say for the Roctane gel, for it to go through that whole testing process and then hit the market was nine years. Nine years. I see. I didn't realize that history. Yeah. So it was, it was around and people were using it for a long time, but it right. was like athletes kind of related to goo and like a small group. And then, yeah, it just took a long time, but people the, knew it was great. The drink mix seemed like it was maybe two or three years. Yeah, so that was, right. yeah, that was a little bit faster. Cause okay. yeah. Okay. Well, good job on getting the flavoring right. Cause the first one, <laughs> fruit punch wasn't doing it for anybody. <laughs> Super bitter, but you guys did a good job flushing it out. And that's part of R and D, right? Yeah. You learn yeah. and you improve. For sure. So you mentioned something earlier, like you follow the um, you follow the research trends pretty closely, and that's something that I do as well. Mm-hmm. And as you're very well aware of, nutrition is becoming more and more polarized. It seems every few years, yeah. um, from when the research comes out to how it's presented into the public. And I wanted to get your perspective on this fine balance that you have to have as a practitioner, meaning as a practitioner that's maybe not necessarily doing the research itself, but taking the research and applying it to athletes. There's this very fine balance, there's this very fine balance between chasing that research down every time something comes out and saying, oh, this is the you know latest, greatest thing that just came out versus letting it simmer and marinate a little bit mm-hmm. in the space for a while and having other research papers come up and then other ones that are contradictory to you know the first paper that came out. I wanted to get your perspective on how you like just what your thoughts are on that when you're thinking about products for goo and also how you think about it as an athlete. Yeah. Uh, and it's very timely, you know, like there are constantly things coming out, this new ingredient or that new ingredient or or you know, method of, of nutrition periodization or what have you. And, you know, it's always going to be the next like silver bullet, right? But um, as you mentioned, like there are going to be more studies and until you can see like a good body of evidence that supports whatever it is that you're considering, it's really kind of risky to just go blindly and follow these trends. Um so, you know, from my perspective, yeah, I, I watch and see what's what's new and what's next. Uh, but you do want to see not only just like a decent amount of studies, but quality studies, right? So like controlled, maybe clinical if you can, but like at least placebo controlled, uh, good sample size, like, you know, quality research. And so that's always, it's... And it's frustrating sometimes when, um, you know, media catches on to a certain headline and they're like, oh, this study says this. And it's like, yeah, but that study was in like five people and, uh, you know, they had this condition and it wasn't like athletes. And so it's not something that you just apply blindly to an athletic population, you know. So So I want to bring up two that have kind of come up recently Mm -hmm. that we can bat back and forth and you can pick which one you want to talk about first and maybe we'll take the rest of the time and we'll talk about that and we won't get to the second one. But the two, the the two that are like in vogue right now, or at least the most in vogue right now in the endurance space are hydrogels Mm -hmm. and ketone esters. Mm -hmm. And we're start, we, we've seen commercial products, you, you know, utilize this technology and both of those, and I, I think you'd probably agree, but please tell me if you don't agree. I would, I would say that both of those haven't been completely flushed out in the research in terms of their efficacy. They're kind of at the very early stages of that. And we really don't know what's going to happen two, three, four, five years down the line. Yet there are companies and products out there that are already starting to be developed and trying to take a first mover position type of approach. 
So let's pick one of those for, or if you want to give a general statement oh, on man. that. I mean, I've been looking, I've been following the science on both of them very closely. I'm sure. Um, and I have, I've tried both personally. Um, I actually did take ketone esters up Everest. So uh, I don't know if that tells you anything about how I feel about them, but uh, yeah. So, and the research with ketone esters specifically, it's so hard to dive through because there are different forms of ketone esters, right? right? So there's ketone monoesters and there's ketone diesters, and they actually work slightly differently and have different effects in the body. And so, you know, research gets lumped together as ketone ester and research, but it could be a different type. And, you know, that maybe isn't the same thing that you're getting with the ketone monoester, for instance. And the use cases are completely different too. Right. So, yeah. So that science, I feel like there's a getting to be, it's been, you know, five or more years now in the making. So that research is starting to get flushed out pretty well and it's ongoing. And, um, I feel pretty good about where that research is at so far, enough to feel comfortable taking ketone monoesters myself and um, for certain use cases, recommending them. Um, the hydrogel, also been following that very closely. Um, so, you know, claims that it's tolerated better in the GI system, that it empty, empties more smoothly from the stomach so that it doesn't overload the small intestine with the amount of carbohydrates that you can get in there. Um, couple of research studies recently coming out saying that they tested it versus a normal carbohydrate drink uh, with a similar composition as far as blend of carbohydrate and total carbohydrate amount, finding no difference in performance or, um, you know, GI tolerability and things like that. So again, it's like one study that's come out basically kind of saying, well, this isn't any better than a standard sports drink, but you know, they're still testing it. So we'll see. I'm definitely interested to see what other research is coming out on what, that. What's Goo's strategy on trying to be on the cutting edge versus letting all of that get flushed out? Because it is a risk as a nutrition company to develop a product where the efficacy hasn't, you know, hasn't really been teased out because you end up having your, when that's the case, you kind of have egg on your face from a reputation perspective, right? Yep. If you come out with something and then all of a sudden it turns out that it's, you know, it doesn't work or in, in a worst case scenario, it's even dangerous. And I can actually remember back to um, when this recovery drink in Durox was first mm -hmm. developed, right? With a four to one carbohydrate to protein ratio. Yep. And uh, the original research was, it was in part done by one of our coaches, Kathy Zawatsky, mm -hmm. who, who was working in John Ivey's lab at the University of Texas at the time. And so they did all this research that said, you know, if you have a if you have a recovery drink with a very specifically a four to one carbohydrate to protein ratio, you're going to be able to resynthesize glycogen faster. Well, it turns out, you know, after you know years, that study was not isocaloric, and we know that having a study in a recovery setting, you need to have it isocaloric because the total amount of calories will drive that glycogen resynthesis. But at the time we were all kind of blinded. And I say we, like the whole community, the research community, the nutrition community, and the coaching community, for whatever reason, we couldn't see the, the forest for the, through the proverbial trees on that. And finally, when we figured it out, we all looked like idiots. <laughs> and so I, I always use, I use that as like, since I was a little, since I was kind of close to it, I always use that as a, just like a case in point of there's this fine line between trying to be on the cutting edge and getting things right. And a lot of times it's just guessing, like having a bioplausible scenario first right. and then working a product into that bioplausible scenario. And so I'm wondering as a, like a nutrition scientist that's responsible for research and development of new products, 
like just strategically or philosophically, like how do you balance those two elements of being on the cutting edge versus having solid efficacy behind something before you get a product to market? That is a fantastic question and it's really tough, right? So you you find something that you think is going to work and you want to test it and, and get it out there before kind of, you know, it becomes just mainstream and everybody's doing the same thing. But um, you also have to do your due diligence and make sure not only is it work, but it's also safe and, you know, tolerable and you know, the way people use our products is different than the way people use a lot of sports nutrition, which is kind of like an acute sense, right? So our products are being used repeatedly over long durations of time. So not only does it have to be safe for like a single administration, but it has to be safe for people who are out there for, you know, 48 hours or more, things like that. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's really tough. And sometimes it is like you, you, put an ingredient in and it ends up like we ended up taking antioxidants out of our formula because, you know, the science kind of changed and we're like, no, an inflammatory response to exercise is healthy and necessary. And so you don't want to blunt that with antioxidant supplementation. So in that case, you know, we learned and, and that's what we do. And so I think, you know, there is a risk. We are very cautious about, you know, jumping on any trends too quickly or anything like that, but we are obviously interested in if there's something that's going to work and going to improve in performance, um, we want to get it out there and we want to be the ones who, you know, pave the way. So. I'm so glad you brought that antioxidant piece up because that was something that I wrote down in my notes mm-hmm. that I wanted to bring up with you in, in more in this general context of you have a product out there and then you figure out that something about it just doesn't work. And in this case is the antioxidants. Mm-hmm. How does that conversation go from a research and development standpoint where you, where you've, made a mistake and that's kind of over, I don't know whether that's overstating or not, but you've made a mistake within the formulation somehow and you have to backtrack and say, okay, we're going to tweak this product in this way because something new has been elucidated in the, in the research field or in the field of, or in the field of practice. Yeah. And so a lot of those conversations will come from kind of my role, right? So if I see something or I'm learning, you know, there's a new body of evidence that's saying, you know, something we've been doing may not be the best way of doing it, then I will definitely make a recommendation and create kind of a case for why we should change a formula. And um, similar, that was kind of how new Roctane protein recovery was was revamped. Um, you know, we had a previous iteration. It was uh, just a recovery drink mix. Yeah, that was and, the other one I was going to bring up. Yeah, so it was 10 grams of protein. It had like nonfat dry milk in it and, and things like that, which it was fine. It worked, right? It, it had the, a three to one ratio. Um, but I felt like we could be doing better. And the research was saying, you know, look at some of these other forms of, uh, you know, like whey protein isolate and not only just isolate, but the hydrolyzed version, which is even further kind of broken down and pre-digested. So for people who don't tolerate dairy well or don't tolerate lactose, it's even suitable, right? It's what they use in baby formulas. So it's like this very potent and concentrated uh, high quality protein source, but it's really easy on the digestive system. Um, and then the other thing was just the total amount of protein, right? Like 10 grams was just kind of not cutting it. And um, I felt it was time that we needed like at least a 20 gram dose in there based on the latest kind of sports nutrition science standings. Yeah. It's funny because as a coach, 
I've gone through that exact same dialogue in my head mm-hmm. when you when like having those products available because my athletes will ask me like, hey, what should I do for this or what should I do for that? And I would look at a product that would have you know antioxidants in it, and I go be like, ah, I really wish I could recommend this, but I know that there's a better one out there that doesn't have these antioxidants. Same thing with the with the recovery uh, drink mix, and lo and behold, like two or three months later the formulation changes and I'm like, yes, they must've heard me talk to my athletes, but it's good to know that you're kind of behind the scenes, like looking at all that because that thing does, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a moving target, yeah. right? As you're very well aware. Yeah. And I, you know, it's how we get better in, in our day to day, but you got to continually look at ways to improve. Like you can't just be complacent and think that, oh, you know, we were the innovators here who brought gels to the market. Um, we can just sit back and, and relax now, but things are always changing. And yeah, so even just looking at different amino acids within the gel that have changed over time. Um, again, we're constantly looking at the science and looking for ways to make things better. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I want to pivot a little bit and talk more specifically about practical recommendations for athletes and in, in particular in an ultra marathon setting. So we, we were talking earlier that Ultra marathon is like the history of goo, right? I mean, it started at the Hard Rock 100, which I think is a really neat history. And I also think that from a research and development standpoint, it's the best playground because you have athletes challenging themselves at the top of their game. They're doing things longer, harder, you know, than they have. Extremes. Yeah, they are in the very extremes. And also, as you're very well aware, GI distress is the number one issue that ultra ultra runners cite as something that affects their performance in a hundred mile race. And it, it becomes very pertinent for you guys as a nutrition company to try to try to solve that. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a real broad, you know, just general question so you can bring up whatever kind of bring whatever kind of comes to mind. But if you had a new if you had a new athlete to ultra running, they come from marathon background, come from running background or whatever, mm-hmm. what are the few key pieces of advice that you would give them so that they would have a solid nutrition program come race day? Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. Coming into the ultra world um, from say marathon or something like that, you are used to, you know, having to run for maybe two to four hours and that's kind of it. So you can afford a little bit more to kind of mess up, I would say, during an event of that duration. Whereas you get into these ultra marathons, which are four hours, six hours or longer, right? Uh, Into multi-day. But uh, if things go wrong, you have a lot longer that you have to suffer. And it's more likely that you'll end up dropping if you do something kind of critically wrong in the outset. So my first strategy is always, as you mentioned, to take care of the GI distress piece or at least attempt to, you know, make that a non-issue. One of the things I always tell athletes that I'm working with is kind of like sip and nibble if you can. So take things in as if like an IV drip feeding you, not try to force in a bolus of calories or fluids at any, you know, like one point, just like a big rush of any of those. So just be kind of consistent throughout your race and and small amounts over time. So your body is able to kind of assimilate those ingredients. Um, so a chomp versus a whole pack of chomps. Right, right. Like, yeah, you just, you're going to have a probably a vest or, or something to carry things with at, during an ultra race. So like you can afford to just like have things in your pocket and take them out as you need them. Um, 
And then did I just use the old name for that product? Yeah. The original name was Chomps. Chomps. Yeah. Juice. That just tells you I'm stuck in the past sometimes. No, it's okay. But I totally like just went right <laughs> yeah, with you, it. it you, know what I'm ta- you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Keep going. So many people call it Chomps. Um, and then the other part is, you know, you got to be a little strategic about when you're incorporating certain nutrients. So say for instance, like caffeine or solid foods, um, you got to be a little bit strategic, especially if you have a history of GI issues. Like if you have any sort of history of GI issues at any distance, I would say like your likelihood of having some sort of GI issue during an ultra is greatly increased. Uh, So a lot of times, you know, maybe working on things that might be a little tougher to break down earlier in the race when blood flow is still sort of working in your favor. And then later in the race, just trying to keep it more simple. If you have to like switching to all fluids or if if it's a race that goes overnight and there's like aid stations with soups and broths and things like that, switching to something that's just going to be really easy on your GI system. Um, and same with caffeine. Like you got to be a little strategic about that because sometimes caffeine can even irritate GI system, it increases sympathetic drive and that can cause kind of a violent reaction for some people if they take like a big shot of caffeine at any certain point, like late in a race and they're just like immediately not feeling good. So. Violent is a brilliant description for that. I've <laughs> I seen that you know time I mean. and time again, <laughs> yeah. late in races, mile 70, yeah. late eight stations. Yeah. Violent. It seems a like very, a good idea because you're like, I need the energy. But then as soon as it hits your system, it's like, nope. <laughs> so nibble, nibble, sip, sip. <laughs> nibble, nibble, sip, sip. Be strategic with your timing, right? So think about when you might be better able to digest things. So front loading your calories if you can a little bit before, you know, later in the race you go, the more likelihood that you're going to have some issues, maybe not want to eat so much. So maybe try to get a little bit more consistent with the sipping and nibbling early on in the race. And if you have to taper off later, then so be it. At least you got a decent amount of calories in up front. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, beyond that, I think people also because of the nature and the lower intensity of those durations, you're able to get away with eating a little bit more adventurously. And adventurously. I say that I wow. say that with a bit of caution <laughs> because I think, you know, instead of just doing pure sports and nutrition, you can afford to do some like real foods and things like that. For most people. That's not everyone. Um, but a lot of people can get away with doing more solids and, and real foods later in ultra races than they can in, in a higher intensity. I say higher intensity, but marathon would be considered higher yeah, intensity yeah, in this yeah. case, relatively. There's, um, you know, GI distress is like the nemesis of all ultra runners right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and recently there's been these two somewhat divergent strategies start to emerge in order to combat that. Mm-hmm. One of them is training the gut. So you're going to intake more calories at a higher rate than you would during the race. And there's an adaptation that takes place while you're doing that, just like any other training adaptation, right? You go harder, your body adapts to that particular stress. But the point is, is you're taking in more calories during training uh, than you would during the race. And then the other strategy, which is, it's not on the opposite side of the spectrum, but I, I, I describe them as being divergent because they're definitely trying to accomplish two two different things and it and they can be contraindicated if you're trying to do both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. The other one is it is becoming fat adapted. Yeah. So in some form or fashion, either restricting your calories, waking up fasted, doing a run, not taking in, you know, as many calories as you normally would during a run, somehow trying to manipulate the body's biochemistry through caloric restriction in order to upregulate 
all of the fat burning processes that go on in the body. Right. And when I look at those, and there's a there's a recent paper um, by the ISSN, which I'm sure you which I'm sure you read, mm-hmm. that described both of those. And once again, when I'm looking at that as a practitioner, I'm like, well, if I have an athlete do both of those, they're on opposite sides of the fence. And are the adaptations that you're trying to create somehow not, you know, compatible. not, yeah. Are they, yeah. are they compatible? And so I want to know you, like your opinion on that as a, as a professional in the field. Yeah. And, um, we have a performance lab on site where we can actually do metabolic testing and things like that. And that's something that we look at very closely with athletes and determine whether a fat adaptation strategy might be in their interest, which could be the case for some of these guys. How do you see that? Guys or gals. Um, so what we do is we look at their, caloric burn and not only that, but where the calories are coming from. So whether it's fat or carbohydrate predominantly at a variety of intensities, and then we pick out kind of what their estimated race intensity is going to be. And we see where that is as far as carbohydrate versus fat metabolism. So let's back it up a little bit. You put an athlete on on a treadmill at a certain intensity. You're measuring their expired carbon dioxide. Yep. They're wearing the gas, the the gas mask like Darth Vader. Exactly. And then from that, at that particular intensity, you're determining the ratio of carbohydrates versus fat they're burning. And mm-hmm. then you're determining from that, is, a sustain, is it a sustainable strategy based on the metabolics you're seeing? And if it's not, we're gonna combat that with strategies to burn more fat. Am I understanding that workflow kind of correctly? Yeah, if, if the event that they're training for in particular tends to warrant that, right? So if it's a really long event and they're gonna be working at like maybe 50 to 60% of their VO2 max and it makes sense to be, a little bit at least fat adapted so that they can kind of spare glycogen and, and carbohydrate reserves for later, yeah. Um, then yeah, absolutely. We'll look at ways for them to improve their fat burning capacity and their ability to you know, burn fat even at a higher intensity than 50 to 60%. So we move the crossover point essentially right. um, to the right. And the crossover the point being? The point at which you're burning half and half fat versus carbs. It's the point at which beyond that, you're burning more carbohydrate than fat. So like, you know, you're tapping into your reserves at that point, unless you're supplementing with more carbohydrate. But on the other hand, you know, if the event is going to be high intensity, um, shorter duration, you know, you're working above, you know, I'd say 70% of your VO2 max most of the time, then you're going to want to look at maximizing the whole gut training aspect of it and being able to take in as much energy comfortably without issue as you can, you know, so it really depends on the athlete and the event and and also some athletes just don't do as well trying to eat constantly and, and maybe they have a sensitive GI system. So for them, it might be better to do fat adaptation training. It really depends. Yeah, I, it's a complicated problem to try yeah. to solve because I do, I do feel that at times those strategies are at odds with each, with each other. And the other thing that I don't think that we quite have a very good answer to is how transient those adaptations are. Yeah. Right. Like, do they come and go very quickly or do they stick around for a long period of time? Like we have a good model for that in like cardiovascular physiology. So I apply an impulse to an athlete. We're going to have them do a workout. Mm -hmm. The improvement from that workout shows up, you know, a few dozen days later Mm -hmm. and then sticks around for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Right. We generally know those timeframes, but with a lot of these nutrition adaptations, I, I don't. Maybe maybe you can maybe you can help explain it a little bit better. But we don't quite know like how long those actually stick around. So if you go through a specific fat adaptation type of strategy, I'm going to wake up fasted and go do a run, mm-hmm. and somehow that's going to upregulate all of my fat burning capabilities. Is, does that last for a week, a month, a year, a day? 
Yeah, your next meal. Yeah, your next meal. Exactly. Very, yeah. No, yes, you're exactly right. Like once you start to take in carbohydrate, is it then gone? Yeah. Which is plausible. I mean, there's like a metabolic switch essentially. Right. Um, so yeah, and it's it's crazy. Also, you know, looking at people who are trying to become fat ad- fat adapted, um, you know, you see criticism on studies that are looking at these three week protocols right. and saying, well, that wasn't enough time. I'm sure they are maybe in a state of fat adaptation compared to where they were, but is it optimal for performance at that point? Like they haven't reached the point where that is kind of the the comfortable state for their metabolism to be in. But yeah, the the point at which it changes and can decay, it can happen in as little as a few days, just right. looking at changes in your diet because the cells you know, in your GI tract turn over that quickly every two to three days. And so you can change the receptors that line your small intestine, which is where absorption of nutrients occurs. So absolutely, it's like, it's very flexible. And you know, you can put somebody on the metabolic cart, which we've done in the morning, fasted, test them, test their metabolism, put them in on the cart again in the afternoon and have different results. And right. it also depends, we've tested them like taking, you know, maybe gels and then taking other supplements and just seeing what that does to the acute metabolic response. And it could be wildly different. Yeah. So I, I tend to, you can tell me what you think about this and I'd appreciate like your honest response because I'm not going to claim to know all the answers, but when I'm working with athletes, I tend to lean on more often than not the training, the gut strategy, mm-hmm. because philosophically, I, I think, and this is an, totally an I think statement, I think that those adaptations can stick around for a little bit longer period of time. And in, and in addition to that, all of this upregulation of the you know fat burning capabilities is harnessed through months and months and months of hours and hours and hours and hours of aerobic training. Mm-hmm. And to upregulate that anymore, unless you're taking on an extreme strategy, like a ketogenic type of strategy, I just feel it is very, I just feel that those adaptations are kind of very marginal and they tend to, once you take in food, once you take in additional carbohydrate, they tend to, those adaptations tend to not be very meaningful. So that both of those things kind of, from a, from a practitioner's perspective, have kind of uh, forced me to come to the conclusion to just lean on the training, the gut strategies more, not in all cases, but in more cases mm-hmm. than the fat adaptation strategies, not black and white, but that's typically where I'll, I'll skew towards. And I want to know if you have any thoughts or disagreements on that. I, you know, again, everything is so individual based on the athlete and their needs in the event. But I would say for athletes who tend to have GI issues when they try to take in a substantial amount of calories, you know, more than 90 grams of carbs an hour, things like that. Um, Fat adaptation might be a better strategy. Uh, Athletes who are going to be out there for, you know, more than I'd say even eight to 12 hours, fat adaptation might be a good strategy for them. Um, So yeah, but I I do see the benefit of gut training. Like you can see those changes. Um, People are able to tolerate more calories and it gives them more energy. So yeah, it makes sense. Um, But I'm not going to give a blanket statement and be like, yeah, that's the best strategy for for most athletes because it's so variable. I I agree with you that uh, the athletes that have more of a history of GI intolerance that just can't stomach things, you need to, I almost take an all of the above approach. Yeah. Like you need to do everything and just kind of solve it. And the biggest linchpin in it all in all of it is honestly just getting into the routine of 
practicing your race day nutrition because also that makes it more comfortable for the athlete. Right. This is something that we don't talk about a lot as well. We tend to we tend to think about GI distress as solely something that's physiologic, but there's also a psych, like a psychological part of it as well. If mm. you have an athlete that is continually experiencing GI distress race after race after race, there's absolutely a psychology behind that. Yeah. And so if you have them practice their race day routine during training over and over and over again, it'll reduce that or it, it can reduce that psychological burden. So it's just one less thing that they have to kind of encounter and battle on race day. Right. And absolutely, no matter what the strategy is, even if they're fat adapted, they're still taking in calories during a race. Like sure. It's not mutually yeah. exclusive by any means. And so I always as you do, I'm sure, advocate training your race day nutrition while you're out there on your long runs, um, getting as comfortable with it as you can, even down to like which flavors work for you in different conditions, because that is a thing people don't realize is, you know, it's hot outside and maybe your favorite flavor is sea salt chocolate, which is mine, but not when it's 85 <laughs> degrees. Like, not a Western States rock choice. Right. So you might want to go with like a lighter citrus flavor or something that's going to be lighter on the palate and encourage you to want to take in more versus something that's going to kind of sit there like a chocolate and you're like, oh man, this is just not the right environment for yeah. this at all. I, so. tol I totally agree with that. Yeah. Okay. So since you mentioned Roctane, I've got a, like a challenge problem for mm. you a little bit. So buckle down. Okay. So Roctane is, is, has, is pitched as this ultra endurance drink, right? Mm -hmm. And I do have a contention with that with that uh, with that strategy, mainly from the perspective of, and I'm I'm talking about ultra marathon, maybe not ultra cycling so much. Okay. Ultra marathoning is my world, um, but mainly from the perspective of the calorie content in it, and in an ultra marathon, especially the longer ones, and Western states is a great example. Mm -hmm. You have these wild temperature swings. Starts out in the morning, it's 40 or 50 degrees. You get in the canyon, it's 110 degrees. And then for a lot of athletes, it'll go back down to 50 degrees. Right. And when you have a drink that is such high calorie and you're going to be blowing through so many fluids just to keep up with your hydration needs, you're going to end up over calorie, right? If that's the only thing that they're if that's the only thing that the athlete is is consuming, and I know that you wouldn't advocate for that, but I've seen things in the space. It's like, oh, then Magda, right, has kind yeah. of come out and said, that's the only thing I drank during Western States. Mm -hmm. And I look at that as a coach. I'm like, well, if that message gets propagated, I'm going to have an athlete out there that needs a liter or maybe even a liter and a half of fluid per hour. Yeah. And if they're, if they're doing that solely through Roctane as per the advice they're gonna end up having way too many calories on board at some point during that event. And so I, I just bring that up just to get, cause I, I, know, I know that you know, I know, I know that you're gonna have a perspective on this and I just wanna hear like, how do you, you kind of like square that advice that's kind of out there in the field when it can be so disparate? You're saying that the, the advice that kind of it's all you need? For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause that's out there, I mean, you, that, that that should be an admission that, hey, listen, Magda drank Roctane through, throughout the entirety of Western States and, th and that's the only thing that she had. Right, yeah. And again, looking at differences of, of context is key, right? So somebody who's doing maybe like a, a sub 20 race versus somebody who's getting up into, you know, 30 hours and looking at nutrition and hydration strategies, those are going to be very different contexts, right? So maybe you can get away with it for a certain number of hours, but for some of the athletes who are out there longer, uh, that might not be the greatest strategy. 
to be safe, I... We'll bring in your marketing department and see what they say. (laughs) But I'm like, I think that honestly, a lot of people can get away with just doing Roctane and like a gel as needed every hour. And that'll get you at 350 calories. But, you know, if you're drinking more than a serving of Roctane drink mix every hour, then there is the possibility of overload. The problem that you can do that when it's cool. The problem is when it's it's hot hot. and you need more fluids. Because if you need, if you need a liter of fluid, which is, that's the upper end of the range, right? For most, you know, kind of normal people, normal races and things like that. That's the upper end of the range. And for sure, there's only going to be a very small swath of athletes that can handle a liter of Roctane from a caloric perspective per hour for more than three or four hours. And, th- and that's a plausible scenario in an ultra marathon, in a hundred mile ultra marathon. Unless you get them to train their gut with it. Nah, there you go. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I, I know it's a challenging question, but like I, when, when I see that out there, once again, as a coach, cause I get those questions. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, oh, should I just drink? Should I go to an all liquid nutrition program? I think, honestly, I think it can work. I think a lot of people might find that it gets tiring to just be doing liquids for that amount of time. Um, and then, you know, maybe they feel like they're just drinking too much and then they stop drinking as much, which for me, that's a more concerning issue is if they just get tired of drinking at right. some point and then they kind of get dehydrated yep. because of that. So, um, you know, I think calorically and, and composition wise, it's a safe bet. If that were all you were doing, you'd probably be okay. Um but yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, it's just not sustainable for that long. And so it doesn't become a realistic strategy because of that. Like people are going to want solid food at some point, generally. Cool. I appreciate that answer. Yeah. <laughs> you got to put up with this for just a little, little okay, while longer. Okay. Challenge question number two. Okay, go. This is, uh, this is around another one of your products. Mm-hmm. So the Roctane electrolyte capsule. So electrolyte supplementation used to be all the rage going way back to the SCAP days. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was prevalent, you know, Hammer Nutrition, I would say, was responsible for a lot of the uh, proliferation and kind of pioneering in this uh, um, uh, in this world to where you'd see them everywhere. I mean, they were on the tables at aid stations. Everybody had them in their drop bags, on and on and on and on. That has slowly started to come out of favor and so much so that you're probably aware of the former uh, Western States Medical Director, Marty Hoffman's research, where he's mm-hmm. contributing a lot of hyponatremia cases to exogenous sodium supplementation, specifically from capsules. Yep. And I've always viewed there's a time and a place for that, but you have to be like super super careful about when you're actually using those types of products. And so somebody in the R&D world who actually makes sodium supplementation, when you see those recommendations kind of come out in the literature, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on it. And then how should athletes perceive it? Yeah. And uh, we're actually very close with Dr. Hoffman and and we support his Ultra Sports Science Foundation. Um, I think, you know, the research he does and, and supports through that foundation is just so amazing and on for you know our type of athletes that we work with and that you work with um and so yeah it's it's always a little bit disheartening to see just like a blanket statement about you, you shouldn't be needing any sodium supplementation because i think there are obviously we make the product cases where athletes can benefit from sodium supplementation and what are those um Again, so people who are going to be in hot and humid environments where sweat lodges, sweat losses are going to be, you know, 
above and beyond normal situations, you're going to be losing a ton of sodium. And I think at least having it available on the athlete themselves, maybe not having just grab bags on the table full so people can take fistfuls of capsules. I think education is really important, right? So not only just educating people not to grab a handful and take them willy nilly, but know, you know, how much is in each capsule and how much should you take at each dose if you feel like you need it. If you get into the situation where you're like, I'm sweating a lot more than normal. I'm feeling a little bit, you know, dehydrated. Um, maybe I'll take one or two and that, you know, see where it goes. So I think educating on proper use and, and proper times to implement uh, a sodium supplementation strategy is huge. So working with your athletes directly, um, and then, you know, I think I lost my train of thought. That's okay. So no, no, no that's, to- that's totally fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll finish that. So I think a lot of the confusion around this area has been because in close proximity, there's been two extremes of the advice given. Mm-hmm. You have some of the advice, and this is going back to the kind of the early 2000s, where you need to supplement with a thousand milligrams an hour. And for the life of me, giving a recommendation of sodium in terms of per unit time has, it's never been a practical solution because it always should be per unit volume of fluid that you actually need, which is wildly different depending upon the temperature conditions, the intensity and things like that. That's another story. We're not Mm going to go through all that right now. (laughs) But you had one point in time where it was, we're going to put all the capsules on the table and we want the athletes to come by and take four or five of them because more is better. Mm-hmm. And then not, but just two years later, sodium supplementation is bad. It contributes to hyponatremia. Don't take them at all. Not right. just take less. Yeah. Don't take them at all. And an athlete who doesn't keep track of all of the research when they see both of those two ends of the spectrum in such close time proximity to each other, they're like, well, what do I do? Yesterday you were telling me the sky is blue and now you're telling me the sky is green and I don't know what color the sky is anymore. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the like the confusion of it kind of kind of comes around to where we've got these two extremes and and the athletes are just they're just their heads are spinning. Right. Yeah. So again, I, I you know, education is key and having kind of an open dialogue with your athletes and making sure that they've tested different environmental conditions. If they think it's going to be hot or humid at the race, then maybe find a way to train in that and find the appropriate supplementation schedule according to kind of those sweat losses that are going to be similar to race day conditions, if you can. What's the recommendation on the side of the packaging for those rock tank capsules? Um, It'll say, you know, one or two capsules sort of as needed or... um, As needed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and there's how many how many grams of sodium in each one? So there's 140 milligrams per capsule. Per capsule. So at most, it's going to be a 300, 280 milligram right. shot yeah. at the very most, which is reasonable. It's not a thousand milligrams all at once, or it's not even 500 all at once. Right. Because we're, we're assuming, right, that they're taking it in addition to other sports nutrition or goo products, which already have sodium in them. So yeah. we didn't want to make like a huge amount in these capsules so that you wouldn't be able to pair them safely with other products you're using. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm glad we got to talk about that because that is super... And people's lives are at stake with that, with hyponatremia. Yeah. So a lot of the research that Marty has done is... is I mean, it has and it's going to continue to save lives. I was a part of the research study that they did at Western States. I think it was 2009 mm-hmm. where they introduced... Um, uh, for runners who finished the Western States 100 that were hyponatremic, 
they randomized them into three groups. They had an oral rehydration solution. They had an IV standard 0.9% saline uh, rehydration uh, protocol. And then they had, and this is the one I got randomized into, it's either 100 or 150 meter bolus. Do you, do you remember how much no. it was? I think it was 150 milliliter bolus of 3% saline that they just injected in. Okay. And so I got randomized into that one. And that's like the standard care right now for somebody who has clinical hyponatremia because it works so it works so much, uh, so much more quickly. From a purely personal and anecdotal perspective, I went from completely discombobulated. I couldn't form a sentence. I was slurring all my words, I was slurring my words more than normal <laughs> to I felt awesome in 15 minutes. Yeah. Wow. Night and day. It was crazy. Yeah. So they do a lot of good, they do a lot of good research there. And I've always been really appreciative of it because it helps me in, in coaching. I'm sure it helps you guys in, in, yeah. in trying to formulate things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we definitely respect all the work that, that he's done and, and continues to do. So it's definitely been helpful in just keeping people safe and, and educating. Yeah. Safety, right. right. Safety before performance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. Last question for you. Yeah. You can wave a magic wand mm -hmm. and create any cool, fancy product that you want and it hits the shelves with your face and name on it. You get to take 100% credit for that would help athletes perform. What would it be? Oh, goodness. That is a great question. Um, you have to have thought about this. Like, oh, I really, I re it could be for you. It could be for... Anybody else in your office could be for another athlete. You had to have thought about this. Honestly, I think finding it would be kind of an assortment of products. Okay. So it would be for specific, like, like choose your flavor depending on your adventure. Remember those choose your adventure books mm -hmm. where you'd be like on page totally. 29, you can turn to I love those slay the dragon. Kid. <laughs> yes. So that would be like my product lineup and it would be like, here's the specific gel you need for hot weather or here's the specific gel you need for high altitude because of the ingredients that we mm. put in it. So it'd be like this battery or toolkit of, you know, specific condition sets gels, which is like, that is your go-to for whatever the condition is that it, it warrants it. So I think for me having like a lineup where you can really customize your nutrition intake based on what your conditions are going to be like, I think that would be so amazing because there's just so many variables and the places where I compete, AKA like mountains and I'm <laughs> going to extreme environment. I'm going to Antarctica in four weeks. I'm like, there's definitely a different product that I want for that than if I'm out on a trail. So when are you going to take the Antarctica? Um, looking at that, but it's going to be a lot of chocolate based things. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. Cause it's going to be like, you want something that's going to feel comforting. You want something that's going to coat the mouth and, uh, um, our gels don't really freeze, which is great. So I'll be taking a bunch of those, but sea salt chocolate for sure. But definitely a lot of calorie dense and probably a little bit heavier on the fat side, uh, similar to maybe the Everest bar, but uh, things that don't freeze readily. <laughs> well, if you have any leftover... You feel free taste to send tester. me some. Yeah, I would love to <laughs> taste test For your next polar expedition. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> you will not find me in Antarctica. I can guarantee you that. I do not do, I do, not do very well in the cold. Glad Roxanne, thank you for your time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you and where they can find Goo. Yeah, you can find us at gooenergy.com. Uh, and um, if you want to follow some of my personal adventures down to the South Pole and to the tops of mountains, you can find me on Instagram at at Roxy Mountain Girl. Wow, awesome. Not only are you a total like 
physical badass. You're also smart as shit. So I always appreciate that <laughs> combination of people. You put your you put your money where your mouth is. You test the products in the most extreme environments, and there's no you know there there's no other there's no better way to do it, right? Because if you make something great, you're going to succeed, and if you don't. You're going to have egg on your face. (laughs) I really appreciate that. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, trail runners, what do you think? Thinking about your nutrition program a little bit differently? Maybe you're thinking about not taking the salt pills next time you see them, or maybe you're thinking about situationally using them. Uh, the next time it's actually called for. Um, I hope uh, if anything you guys got out of this uh, this conversation with Roxanne is that you have to practice your nutrition program during training in order for it to work. I can't tell you guys how many countless times I have seen athletes out there out on the course doing something that they haven't done in training and whether that's something different that they're eating at an aid station or whether that's just the number of calories that they're taking in uh, during the race as opposed to training. Doing something different during a race is always a way to have things go south and just to quite, quite frankly, just mess it up. So everybody would be very well served to practice your nutrition during training that you expect to have during a race. I've written a lot about this. You can uh, go ahead and check out our train right blog. And we actually use this really neat um, nutrition report card at uh, the camps that we use where athletes will actually take an inventory of what they're eating and drinking throughout the day. And it's, um, it's quite insightful because once you're forced to take a step back and actually look at what you were eating and drinking or were you, or what you weren't, more often than not, what you weren't eating and drinking, um, it could just provide some insights into what you need to do differently, what you need to take more of, what you need to take less of, and things like that. Thank you to Roxanne from Goo for being on the podcast. That was uh, really fun, very, very insightful. And I think as this podcast will air, Roxanne will be out tagging her seventh summit out in Antarctica. And she's going to, the plan is at least, is for her to actually go and do the South Pole as well. So much, uh, much the best of luck, the best of luck to you, Roxanne. Uh, I hope you kick ass out there. I'm sure you will. You're well-trained, well-prepared, and it looks like you got some good uh, uh, nutrition things up your sleeve. Before I sign off today, uh, just something on a personal note, um, I had to say goodbye to a really, a really trusty partner of mine, uh, Eddie, my uh, faithful English pointer that we've had for, I don't know, maybe the last 10 years or so. We had to say goodbye to him last week, and uh, I want to take a, just a moment to remember him. Uh, Eddie, Eddie came to us and quite a bizarre and serendipitous set of circumstances. Uh, we were looking to adopt another dog after we had moved into our new home. And I reached out to the rescue or- organization that we had previously worked with. And they said, you know what? Uh, you guys did such a good job with your previous dog. We have a really, we have a really unique uh, case for you. Uh, there's this dog that we wanted you to adopt uh, at the same time that you adopted your your earlier dog, which we had had for four years now. Uh, he just became available again because his owner tried to commit suicide last night. And we're on our way to Wyoming right now to go pick this little guy up and would you take him in? And I, I remember this very vividly, just without hesitation, I said, yes, I mean, you know, how, how else could the stars align where a dog that they wanted us to adopt earlier 
uh, ended up getting adopted out and then became available the exact same day under these some horrific circumstances, the exact same day that, that, that I called back, uh, looking to adopt another dog. And so the res- rescue organization, they drove up to Wyoming, picked this dog up in what, what I can only imagine, uh, it's, it's life before it got to us, drove it back down from Wyoming back to Colorado Springs and dropped it off at our house later that night. And the, the dog, Eddie, uh, God bless his soul, was completely broken. Uh, he was unkept. He was overweight, completely unsocialized, had zero confidence. And for the first several months that, um, uh, that we had Eddie, he would just go into a corner quite frequently and just shake, just shake uncontrollably because he could not handle the whole situation around him. It was just just too much for him. And gradually over the course of, of, of months and years and, you know, throughout, uh, throughout that process of training him to be a better dog and also taking him on a lot of runs and giving him a lot of just care and love, he gradually started to, to, to turn the corner and become, you know, somewhat of a normal dog from this completely broken circumstance. And, he ended up accompanying my wife and I throughout just innumerable adventures out here in the Rocky Mountains and beyond. He's been all over the Leadville course, all over our hometown uh, trails here in Colorado Springs, Colorado, all around the Pikes Peak Massif, all on the Hard Rock course. Uh, he went out there and trained with me for many, many weeks, uh, the two years that uh, that I was fortunate enough to finish that race. He even kissed the hard rock at the at the very end as I crossed the finish line. Apologies to all all of you guys and gals that had to that had to follow suit with uh, uh, Eddie's slobber all over the rock. Um, but he was just he ended up being uh, just a just a delightful dog. And you know, as dog as dogs age, he went from being a constant running companion, going on all these big bomber um, big bomber ultra runs with me. Uh, down to my recovery run specialist and then down to my walking specialist. And then for the last several months of his life, it was just hard for him to, you know, just get up and get around uh, just because he had gotten so old. But he always appreciated every single moment that that, that we spent together, uh, whether we were on the top of Handy's Peak or we were just walking around the block. He really did appreciate uh, uh, getting out there and 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 just being a part of everything. Uh, Eddie was he was also a constant fixture at all of our camps. Uh, I think the athletes that came to all of our running camps really did enjoy his company. He'd be there waiting for us, uh, waiting for us at the gate of my house uh, every time we uh, uh, we came back from a run, ready to lick all the salt off of people and you know test out people's uh, uh, homemade nutrition products that they had left over in uh, in their bags. And uh, he, he loved it. He loved the company and he loved being around people. Um, so we're missing Eddie a lot. He really taught me personally that a lot of precious things can come in very imperfect packages. And he was the, the quintessential notion of that throughout his life that, that we knew him. So I miss you, Eddie boy. Uh, I know that you're, I know that you're fromping around, shredding some trails somewhere. And uh, I can't wait to uh, join you one day and to have one last good run together. Thanks, buddy.